Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from confusion, freedom from fear, freedom from, you know, like, it's almost like just about every human being that you meet carries something that is weighing them down. But Jesus carried all of that. And so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's why there's this interesting contradiction in the Bible. He says, unless you become like children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because children, they're not trying to think things through. They're just like, you know, like if generally speaking, if, if you've got your, your, your child and you say, we're going to such and such a place, they're like, right, that's where we're going. But then on the other hand, so we come like children, but then he says, in all things, we grow up into him who is the head. We become like him. So we enter like children and then we grow up. And what we have now is we've all grown up in fear and we've all grown up in, in, in bondage and oppression and confusion. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So He comes to bring us back to the original plan. That's a really good point. Amen. So we're going to change things a little bit. I just feel like it's time to, for me to preach to you now. So we're going to have communion at the end. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Danny. I, I, I trust you notice that, you know, so the, there's actually um, uh, quite a powerful gift of exhortation in, in Danny. So when he does that, it's not just like a little moment of hype. There's something quite woomphah to it. And I've told you that before, so stop looking so perplexed. He's looking at me all perplexed. And, um, and I also want you to know, like when you're, you know, we're in a new place, and it's a holiday weekend, and so, like, I'm getting messages from people that are all over the place. Ken and Alana are in, uh, are in Nelson having a holiday, and uh, Peter and Karen are in Hastings at the weightlifting competition, and their son Xavier is lifting right now for, I think it's the national championships. Uh, Tasha and Isaac are in uh, Rota- uh, oh, wherever they are, Taupo today, because uh, Isaac's down there swimming in a swim meet. Um, uh, Malcolm and Cindy were going to be here, and I don't know if they were some of the ones that got lost because the brochure somehow, we've been looking at that brochure for three weeks, and it had the wrong date on it. How did that happen? Um, but uh, it's important to note tomorrow is Malcolm's 50th birthday, and so if you think about it, talk to, you know, write them a message tomorrow, Malcolm's turning 50. You know, the cool thing is uh, I led Malcolm to the Lord when he was 15, so uh, 35 years, that's a pretty good history with, with Malcolm. Who else did I hear from this morning? Anyway, so we're in a new place. Some of us uh, turned up at the wrong place before we got to the right place, and then it's a new place. And then with a bunch of people away and everything, it feels disorienting. So right now, we just want to orient ourselves back towards Jesus. All right? Now, before I do this, um, I I want to... Oh, oh, Hope. It's lovely to have you here. We feel hopeful this morning, Hope. Uh, we always feel hopeless when hope's not here, and I'd like to uh, um, welcome our friends from Auckland, Anthony and Trish and Abigail. Forgive me, I, I remembered Anthony and then, and then the other names went out of my head. They're from Auckland uh, visiting, and so it's lovely to have you here. Um, uh, I, I, I was a Westie when I lived in Auckland. They're from the North Shore Westies didn't really acknowledge the existence of the North Shore, really, did, you know, and I, I think vice versa. There was sort of a tongue-in-cheek enmity living in Auckland. Um, and then I committed the unpardonable sin and moved from the West to the East. And also want to welcome you, Tennessee, 
God bless you. It's so good to have you here too. And uh, I was just speculating with her that if I dyed my hair that colour, it would look incandescent. <laughs> so welcome. Um, I also want to acknowledge Simon has done some work on making some screens, which is always interesting with me because, uh, or preachers like me, because sometimes we change what we're going to preach about. And so he does all the work with no guarantee that it's actually going to be useful. But at this stage, I'm sticking to uh, the notes that I gave you. So I, I want to talk to you about, uh, about some things that I believe are, well, obviously I believe they're important, otherwise why would I bother talking to them, talking to you about them? But in general terms, uh, you know, we, we have, those of us that have lived in New Zealand, we've lived in a, in a democracy our whole lives. And immediately I say that, you think, oh, he's finally going to make some political comment. Um, Modern democracy is effectively a byproduct of biblical values. Uh, so the, you know, the biblical value of one person, one vote. Not one person, one vote, another person, more votes. One person, one vote. That we're all effectively uh, created by God and we are therefore equal. And so in this room, uh, whether, whether I stand up here wearing my flash preaching shirt or whether I'm Levi running around uh, there's no difference in terms of our value before God. So democracy was effectively, modern democracy was effectively built on Christian values in Christian societies. So everywhere that we see modern democracy, it grew up uh, in Christian societies. And so effectively, there was a friendly agreement in those democracies between church and society. There was a friendly agreement. So the church in that place has a voice. The church has a vote. And in most of them, the church effectively has a favoured status. So, um, you know, like even in our, in our society now, the church still has a favoured economic status where we don't pay tax and, and things like that. Uh, in these Christian-based democracies, being a believer... Uh, was largely acceptable, and it was effectively quite safe. It was quite safe to be a believer. It was quite safe to be open. I've got to stay out of that because, like, every time I do that, oh, look. That's good timing to do that. But now we live in a time where we can look at our society in New Zealand. Uh, we can look at societies uh, in other, you know, other nations we're familiar with, you know, the UK, uh, the United States, and we can see that there is effectively that friendliness is beginning to change. So this assumption of an underlying compatibility between church values and the values in our culture is beginning to change. The basic friendly agreement between the church and society seems to slowly and steadily be getting supplanted by a hostility. Would you agree with that? So what's happening? What's going on? I, I believe it's this. I believe a double-sided transition is taking place. And so uh, in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it asks this question. Can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So tomorrow, uh, my, my wife and my son will be back. Isaac will probably sleep in until three o'clock in the afternoon, but Tasha and I will still be up and we'll go for a walk. And when we go for a walk, 
we agree to walk together. We agree to walk at the same pace. We agree to take the same route. So this asks the question, can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Now, I want to suggest to you there are some pretty fundamental areas of disagreement in our society. Some of them have been there for a long time. Society teaches our children that they are not created, they are not designed, they are chance evolutionary accidents, nothing more than a biological belch, some sort of a chance event, which undermines, undermines their identity. When it comes to evolution, I'll just speak for myself, I, I am not in agreement with that. My, I'm not going to raise my children you know, hey, Isaac, you know, you're just a chance evolutionary accident. There's no design. You're just here. And at the end of your life, there's just oblivion. Climate change. You go, oh, we're getting political now. Climate change. Uh, I'm not talking necessarily about some of the... Uh, I'm not actually talking about climate change. I'm talking about the political climate change agenda that has been weaponized to bring change into society. And this climate change agenda, like, I'm not even saying whether I think climate change is or is not happening. I'm talking about the political agenda that creates and leverages fear, particularly among the children. It creates immense fear in our children, and I am not in agreement with that. I don't want my kids living their lives terrified. The, agen the, the agenda to create gender confusion. I saw a quote from a leading member of uh, the American administration recently that said when a baby is born, it used to be that the doctor would look and say, that's a boy or that's a girl based on some reasonably obvious evidence. Now... It's being presented like this. A baby is born, the doctor takes their best guess. I'm in disagreement with that. I'm in disagreement at the removal of moral absolutes. I do not agree. I do not agree that you can remove moral absolutes from society. I, I'm, not in agree I'm not in agreement with a Marxist totalitarian agenda that seeks to centralize power into a, the hands of a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people that exercise authority over every area of culture and society. Bluntly, between biblical values and cultural values, even some of these ones like I've laid out, there is no agreement. And so without this agreement... There can't be the walking together in the way that we have had previously. You following me so far, or are you get some of you looking deeply concerned about what I'm what I'm saying there? Okay, I believe the Church of Acts had a very similar experience. So the Church of Acts was at odds on one hand with strict Judaism. Would you agree, the Church of Acts? You, you can see it laid out. There was, there was disagreement. And even as they were working that out, there was disagreement within the church about how to interact. So you had Paul and Peter having a bit of a falling out over whether believers, new believers, Gentile believers, had to adhere to Jewish customs. <clears throat> 
the church was also at odds with oppressive Roman rule. Okay? The church in that time experienced hostility from both of these places, even persecution. Would you agree? Okay. Now, here we are at a time where even uh, in the last couple of weeks, there has been a particular hostility towards a certain kind of fellowship, a certain kind of church. I have felt this very deeply because, um, uh, like I've, I've seen and read about and heard from afar of um, megachurch pastors, you know, falling in various ways over the years. We've all seen that. But this has been the first time it's happened to someone that's an old friend of mine. And I've been wondering, I've been saying, well, you know, the guy that has, you know, the, the journalist that has created this situation, I, I, I was like, is he a mongrel? Or is he doing God's work? Or is he a mongrel doing God's work? And this is not to criticize the gentleman at all. You know, like God, through the Bible even, often was using mongrels to do his work. And then I look at myself and I'm like, effectively, I'm a mongrel trying to do God's work. You know, you know what I mean? I, I was just saying. So how should we respond? How should we respond in a time where there is increasing hostility? Should we panic? Should we protest? I think that's a conscience issue. Jesus put it this way. In Luke 21, in the context of talking about the events escalating in the end times, he says this, now when these things begin to take place, and he's just talked about, does any of this sound familiar? Wars. And rumors of wars. We've got, we've got war in Ukraine, but rumors of greater wars. Famines. They're talking now about food shortages because of the, the lack of fertilizer and the particular crops that come out of Ukraine. He says, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. So here's what I believe. Right now, for the authentic church of Jesus Christ that wants to be in step with the Holy Spirit, we need to rapidly return to our missionary roots. The early believers were humble, they were focused, they were flexible, and they were diligent about being in step with the Holy Spirit and about staying on message and on mission. We've got to go back to our missionary roots. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that in a minute. You doing okay? All right, good. We're still friends. Michael said to me yesterday, he said, just, he said, I like, was it, what was your term? You said, I like the messages that are a, a bit full on or something. And I just, these days, I just feel like those are the only ones I've got. You know, like I, I uh, anyway. Over the centuries, the church has regularly drifted off course. We've drifted into distraction, and we've often drifted into corruption. 
And I think this has happened even more so in recent, recent decades than probably ever before. Think about this for a moment. And this is, again, not to criticize. This is to make a point of something good that's happening. The Salvation Army, if you ask New Zealanders about the Salvation Army, they will reference op shops and helping feed and clothe the poor, right? That's not a bad thing. But that's not how the Salvation Army began. The Salvation Army began and their motto was blood and fire. The blood of Jesus, the fire of the Holy Spirit. And Salvation Army preachers were known to preach in the streets of London with projectiles being thrown at them by an angry population and even chamber pots being tipped on them from the balcony of the house above. I even read one account of a Salvationist who was preaching and someone threw a dead cat at him. Now, originally the Salvation Army were courageous, fiery, focused evangelists. That's what they began as. That was the heart's cry of William Booth of the Salvation Army. Imagine that. Imagine even preaching while things were being chucked at you and people were trying to empty chamber pots on you from the window or balcony above. But they were like, we must preach the gospel because human beings must know that there is salvation found in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the cool thing about the Salvation Army in New Zealand right now is that they are making moves to return to their roots. They've called Seth, Pastor Seth in there to help them. They got Seth going into their national conferences and into their regional gatherings to try and help them recapture the fire. That's not to say they shouldn't run op shops and they shouldn't feed the poor. Absolutely should. But they're actually coming back to their roots, which was blood and fire. I think the wider church needs to do likewise. So let's have a look for a moment. And this has to do with Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday. Ah. You know, I'm happy to report to you last Sunday, I preached in a giant auditorium with hundreds of people in it. And I'm just as happy to be here in this place with not hundreds of people in it. That's a big work that God's done in me. I don't give a rip how many people are there these days. It's so liberating. I used to sit there, you know, you'd get the Sundays when lots of people were away and I'd sit there with a sinking weight coming on me. And now I just don't give a rip. Praise God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So how did Jesus originally commission his church? Well, Luke 24, 49, when he was about to go back into heaven, he said this, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. Now, the interesting thing is he said what, but effectively it was who. I'm going to send you who? I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who my Father has promised. But he said this, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I heard a wonderful sermon about this once where clothed with power is, is, is like, uh, where the, it's, it's like the picture of putting on a glove. And he's saying this, he's saying, until the Holy Spirit has put you on like a glove, till he has filled you with power from on high. So look at this. The Father had made a promise to send the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus has been to the cross. So now sin's penalty has been paid. So part one of the mission had been completed. Jesus now ascends up from the Mount of Olives. And I I just see it like this. He goes back into heaven and he says, Holy Spirit, put your hand up. Tag, you're up. You get, I've been down there. I've done my part. Now you get down there because you've got to do your part. Yaha. So here is the promise. There's a promise and an instruction. (laughs) The promise is the Holy Spirit will come. The instruction, don't go anywhere until he comes. Why? Because when he comes, he will clothe you with power from on high. And the power is to accomplish the mission. You need power. You need more than persuasion. Like today, for me to achieve the goal that's in my heart and preaching the word to you, I need more than to be persuasive. I need more than to be a skilled orator or whatever. I need the power of the Holy Spirit for you to share the gospel with your neighbours. I was praying for my neighbours yesterday. I saw the young lady running around, you know, that's our next door neighbor that's growing up in a non-believing family, but is thoroughly interested in reading the Bible. I saw her yesterday and I was just praying for her as I see her running around in the backyard with her sister. To accomplish the mission, you need more than persuasion or enthusiasm. You think about like, you know, in, in large church gatherings, there's so much human hype. And I'm not saying that we can't have human hype or enthusiasm, but we need more than that. The mission requires power, according to Jesus. So he said, wait for it. Then there is this passage. How are the the screens going, by the way? Are you enjoying those? Good, good. Because I'm not looking at them. But it's very, it's very interesting because I, I see you, you look at me and then it's, it's like this is happening all the time. You look at me and then you're looking behind. And then there is this passage, Acts 1.8. But certain professional Christians will receive power. No, no, I didn't read that right. But you, who? Will, not might, Receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, say witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So again in this passage, Jesus is saying the coming of the Holy Spirit will be accompanied by power. Not just warm, fuzzy feelings. Power. Not just a moment of, woohoo, I enjoyed that. Power. And power has a clear purpose. It's not so Christians can dance around just laying hands on each other going, woohoo, we are all powerful. We are, not we're all powerful, we are all powerful. No, the power has a clear purpose. You will be my witnesses. Now, what's a witness? Well, in a court case, a witness is someone that you call to tell their story to produce proof. 
One way or another, every one of us in this place that has become a follower of Jesus, we are witnesses to the resurrection. I could not have experienced, seen, felt, or heard what I have experienced, seen, felt, or heard if Jesus was dead. But he's not dead. I'll give you, I'll give you a crazy example. I went out fishing yesterday. Always happy to go fishing. The fishing was excellent. I got out there and I knew that Michael was coming fishing too. So I got out there and, no. Anyway, I went out fishing yesterday and I went and parked in my usual spot just off Northwest Rock at Mount Monganui. And I got my anchor down and I put the line down and, and I was like, well, you know, it's getting into winter. I wonder if the fish are still here. Two minutes later, I had the first good-sized fish in the bin. I was like, oh, the fish are here today. Put it back down again. Whoop, up came another one. And I just felt this little nudge from the Lord. He said, you will catch your limit before Michael gets here. And I thought, that's not possible. He's coming now. I know he's coming. He sent the message. I'm on my way. And, you know, the limit is seven snapper. And I pulled up my seventh snapper and I was like, there's no Michael here. So I sent him a message because he'd been having trouble with his outboard motor. And he said, How's, are you having problems with your motor? He says, yep. He said, I'm just going to have to pull the boat back up and go home. I said, I'll come get you. But just a little thing. I couldn't, I, I couldn't have heard that. You'll catch your limit before he gets here if Jesus is dead. If Jesus died and rotted and that's the end of the story, he wouldn't speak. Listen, if dead people start speaking to you, come see us for prayer. So he says, you'll be my witnesses, where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So because of this, it's impossible for us not to see this passage as being a missionary passage. It's impossible. You can't see Pentecost as, as not being connected to mission. So Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 1 verse 9. So we just read Acts 1 verse 8. Look at Acts 1 verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So just put aside a sterile reading of that for a moment. Think about what just happened here. I've stood on the Mount of Olives. It would be pretty weird to stand on the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives is no longer a Mount of Olives. There's no olive trees there at all. But it would be pretty weird. You saw some? Oh, the ones down the bottom. Oh, I didn't see them. I just saw that dodgy hotel and all the graves. Okay, there is an olive tree on the Mount of Olives. I just didn't see it. We drove up the Mount of Olives in a Honda Jazz. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. Imagine standing on the Mount of Olives with Jesus and suddenly what happens? He goes up. There's a man flying through the sky. Think about that for a moment. There's a man flying through the sky who goes up and disappears into the clouds. <laughs> then this happens. The first part of verse 10. They were looking up intently into the sky. Why wouldn't you be? Think about it. You'd be like... <laughs> They were looking intently up. and Of course they were looking intently up into the sky. A man has just gone up into the clouds. Where would you be? You're not going to be looking around and going. You'd be, you're going to be looking up intently into the sky. 
and then the rest of verse 10 and verse 11, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? The answer to that is a man just flew up into the clouds. Okay. And then this, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So on the Mount of Olives, moments after Jesus ascends, two angels turn up and say this right there. He's only just gone. They say he's coming back in the same way. So right at the start, right at the beginning, these two angels turn up and say, shift your focus from him leaving to him returning. Don't stand there looking back. Get on with the mission looking forward. Simon, can you give me, a, give me, give me one of those pictures, please? I searched popular pictures of Jesus. That, uh, now, I'm not being rude about whoever, whoever designed that, but that does not look to me like a Jewish carpenter. Can I have another one? I really want to follow him. Yoa. Now, again, my goal is not to be rude about you know, I can't draw, I can't paint, so I'm not being rude about that. But one thing you've got to realize, every one of these pictures is looking backwards. Every one of these pictures, got the next one? Every one of these is referring to the brief moment in time where Jesus was what Isaiah 53 called the man of sorrows. All of these pictures, whoa. All of these pictures are about that brief moment when Jesus was the man of sorrows. And all of these are therefore looking backwards. But here, right at the start, the angels say, shift your focus from him leaving to what? Him returning. Don't stand there looking back. Get on with the mission looking forward. Why is this so important? Well, if they'd stayed there looking backwards, the early church would have become a monument, not a movement. And what we look at is very important. Here's a controversial example. Do you want a controversial example? Who wants a really, this is a really controversial example. What you look at is important. What did Hitler do to the church in Germany in the 1930s? He made them remove the cross and he put a swastika at the front. He took the Bibles off the altars and he put his book, Mein Kampf, there. Why? Because what we look at is important. I'm not knocking the Catholics, but I, when you go into a Catholic church, they have a crucifixion. They have a cross with Jesus crucified on it. Now, I'm not saying that's bad, but what we look at is important. I believe this, the death of Jesus was not intended to be our primary motivation for endurance. This is Dalton Thomas. He says, what hasn't happened yet is the motivation for enduring to the end. See, we've defined obedience, which is an important part of the Christian life, as things that you should do, this is again quoting Dalton Thomas, because of what Jesus has done. But endurance has to be built on something more than that. 
Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Endurance, I believe, is to be built on the desire to be ready when he comes, that we are ready to see him face to face. Again, quoting Dalton, past tense event, past tense events are a weak motivation for present tense obedience. So, I believe that we are in a transition of focus from the cross. Now, if you, only, if, you, if you just hear this line and zone out, you're going to think I'm a heretic and you're going to be looking for another church by lunchtime. <laughs> hear me right through. We transition in our focus being on the cross to our focus being on the second coming of Jesus. Do you know right now today, we are much closer to the day when his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives than we are to the day when his feet left the Mount of Olives. That our focus now must shift from the suffering Saviour to the glorious soon coming King. This is not about diminishing the cross. The cross is the very foundation that we're standing on. Without the cross today, we would sing about a heaven we could never go to and we would, we would fear a hell we, could, we had no power to avoid. The cross is everything we stand on. But now we begin to realize that we are more living in the shadow of the return of Christ than we are the shadow of the cross. It's a transition in emphasis from this age towards the age that is to come, from a past faith to a future faith, from a past Jesus to a future Jesus, because eternity is bearing down on the planet. Jesus is coming. So this is what I believe. Standing on the foundation of the cross, we must live in anticipation of His return. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has, past tense, appeared to all men and women, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Obedience. Looking forward to the blessed and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is endurance fueled by the fact that He will return. I would even suggest this. The cross does not make sense of a chaotic world that we live in. But when you understand that we may be living in a time that Jesus referred to as the birth pains that would be on the earth before He returned. So we stand here today on the immovable, invaluable foundation of the cross, but with our hearts burning in anticipation because Jesus will return. And all of this we do fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, poured out on those original believers that waited, setting the precedent for every person who would ever follow Him. All right. You okay? You got, he's got a few more minutes in you or you're really getting, getting to the overdose point. So I was praying for some friends in Oregon. Many of you know back in the day, I used to go to Oregon a lot. I think I've been there about 20 times. And it's some friends that have just moved into a new building. They're raging Holy Spirit Pentecostals. 
but they've moved into a, like an old style Episcopalian or Methodist church. And it's got, you know, a big, big high ceiling at the front underneath the steeple in downtown Portland. Just to give it context, these friends, uh, they were leading worship and doing uh, street evangelism right in the middle of all the, uh, all the Antifa riots in downtown Portland that happened. Some of the people in this church were hurt out there doing that. So I was just praying for them. And if you picture it, right in the middle, right above where the pulpit and the worship leaders stand, I saw this huge fireball standing like in the middle of the room above the stage. And this fireball, it was like it was, um, it was moving and it was alive. And it had, does this sound familiar? It had tongues of fire coming out of it. And everywhere one of these tongues of fire would land, people were getting saved. They were getting set free from demonic influences. They were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were getting healed. And then I kept looking and I saw that many of these tongues of fire were landing outside the building, outside the meeting. And then I kept looking and I realized that the fireball was not only there when the church was gathered, but I saw the fireball still sitting there when no one was in the room and the room was dark and silent. I said, Lord, what am I seeing? And he reminded me of this scripture. Isaiah 33, 14. Have you ever had a scripture that got your attention in a way that you just couldn't avoid? In 2009, this scripture got me. I was just doing my usual Bible reading and I'm just charging along through Isaiah and I came to Isaiah 33, 14. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning? I had no idea what that meant. I actually, apart from when I was studying to teach my students, like Steve and Andrew, I only read this one verse for about three months. And I was asking the Lord, what is that? And then I realized it's not a question, it's an invitation. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, it says our God is a consuming fire. And it was the God who is a consuming fire saying, who among us can dwell with me in the full nature of who I really am? I'm a consuming fire. Who can, to use our colloquialism, who can handle the jandal? Who can dwell, who will dwell with me in all that I am? See, the fire was not just there when the church was there. Too many Christians visit God. They date Him. We have a Sunday date with God and then we go off. He's saying, who can dwell with me? And I don't know about you, but that, that sounds pretty dangerous. You know, different context in the Proverbs that says, who can scoop fire into their lap and not be burned? That's a pretty good question. You can't. If you scoop fire into your lap, you're going to burn yourself. And it's the same thing, who can dwell with the God who is a consuming fire? Who can put aside the religious, stereotypical God teddy bear that we've created to make ourselves comfortable 
and actually say, I want to dwell with this God who is a consuming fire. So I thought about this and I wrote it all down and I put it into an email and I sent it to the leaders of that church. So I hit send. And the moment I hit send, I felt like the Lord said, do you, do you want this? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the moment where I suddenly realized this just wasn't just for my Oregon friends, but I think rather this was a picture of how Jesus sees his church. As a group of humble, thirsty, fiery-hearted Fueled by the return of Christ, standing on the foundation of the cross, ordinary people that will say, I want to dwell with you. I want to live my life with a burning heart. I want to be a part of the tongues of fire that don't just hit inside little gatherings or large gatherings of the saints, but are for our neighbours and our, our friends and people out there in cafes and walking down the street. And it reminded me of something that I felt like the Lord said to me way back in the 1990s. In the 1990s, I felt like the Lord said, I will again show myself in this generation to be the God who answers by fire. Now, the context of that is 1 Kings 18. Remember when, when uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal were having their face off? Not having their, their face off, having their 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 duel, and Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you call on your God, I'll call on my God, the God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. Now I'm not necessarily talking about the fire of God falling on a chopped up bull on an altar. I'm talking about the fire of his love, the fire of divine purpose, and the fire of urgent anticipation as we live in this age, overshadowed by the return of Jesus. I don't know if he's coming back in 10 years or 100 years. To me, that's actually irrelevant. If he's coming back in 100 years, that's my great-grandchildren. If he's coming back in 10 years, depending on how things unfold, that's my life. But either way, that we would be living in the shadow of that. I love that Jesus was the suffering Savior, but I know that I'm never going to see him that way. Because when I stand face to face with him, when you stand face to face with him, he doesn't look like the suffering Savior, the man of sorrows. He's got eyes of fire and a face seven times brighter than the sun. He's made of fire from the waist up and like burnished bronze from the waist down. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth and a voice like many waters and on his robe and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And like Danny said, when God most high looks up, there's no one above him. We don't see him as the man of sorrows. We see him with burning eyes of fire and it's the fire of his love. It's the fire of his nature. God is love. I was going to show you, but I won't do it. I was going to show you a little video. Um, it was from the National Swim Champs when Isaac was swimming down there uh, last month. And there's just this interesting video of when he turns to swim the last 100 meters of the 400 freestyle. 
and you can see him swimming direct, like the camera's right here at the end of the lane as he's swimming, and then you see him do his tricky tumble turn. I've tried doing one of those, and I just got in a horrible tangle and hit my head on the bottom of the pool, so I don't do those. He comes and he does his tumble turn, and he heads off on the last 100 metres of the race. He swum 300 metres. He's a bit tired now, but you see suddenly his kick goes absolutely crazy. My son, when he swims, he's got a good kick. There's about six feet of splash behind him. Big wide feet, you see. Why is he doing that? He's in the last hundred meters and he's like, it's go for it time. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to swim as fast and kick as hard and it's time now to go for it. Why? Because the finish line's in sight. And friends, I want to suggest to you that it's go for it time. No more holding back. No more Sunday churchianity. No more living just with the eyes of the suffering Savior, but living before the eyes of the blazing furnace man of God who will return. It's time to start kicking. Ashley, would you come? Can I ask you, would you stand up, please? Here's also something that I want to do today that might seem a little different to you. I personally, personally don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. However, I know some people that do, that I respect. Either way, it's go for it time. If you believe that Jesus is returning and you have to endure to the end, it's go for it time. If you believe differently to that and you believe that we will be removed before the return of Christ, it's still go for it time. You understand? I'm not saying that to confuse you. I'm saying it to acknowledge the fact that there are different ways of looking at this. But either way, the Son of God is coming. And I just want to be ready. The way I view it is I'm, I'm doing my best to lock and load and endure to the end. And if I'm wrong and there's a pre-trib rapture, I'm not going to be yelling out. I'm not going to be yelling out, no, I can't go. I'm going to be going, hey, Danny, you were right. Bonus. I want you just for a moment, regardless of where you're at with God, I want you for a moment, just, just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, we love and honour you. And we are delighted that you have been poured out. And we thank you now that it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of wishing or begging. Because Jesus Christ himself has said over believers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Oropi, in Griotin, throughout the city, throughout the land and even to the ends of the earth. So Holy Spirit, right now, we receive you. We receive you by faith. We say thank you. We receive you. Lord, I ask 
that your tangible touch now would be on every human in this room and also on anyone who would stumble across this recording. We ask, Lord, for the fiery presence of your nature to come fill our hearts, the fire of divine love, the fire of perfect love that drives out all fear in Jesus' Name. The fiery furnace of Your presence that breaks every addiction and every bondage and sets every captive free. The fire of divine purpose and urgency. As Lord, we live in the hour of turning for the finish line. Lord, bring us back to our mission. Father, we thank You that You didn't say I want to take them out of society. But you said, no, I want to protect them from the evil one while they are in it as witnesses. We love you, Holy Spirit. And I ask, let your presence and your anointing begin to fall on every person. Let your grace and your fire begin to fall on every person. Let your anointing be released to fill and flood every person. In the name of Jesus, let your fire and your anointing and your grace and your mercy and your power flood us. Get us back on mission in Jesus' Name. I pray this for these ones in this room and Lord, for our family and friends that are in various other places around the land today. Fresh grace on that strong, anointed, prophetic gift and deliverance ministry. Thank You, Lord, for all the ways that You use Anna. I pray, Lord, increase Your anointing and Your authority on her even tenfold in Jesus' Name. I thank You, Lord. I thank You, Lord. I thank You, Lord. I thank You, Lord. Fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thank You, Lord, for Howard and Jill in Jesus' Name. Thank You, Lord, Your presence, Your anointing, Your love, Your grace, Your fiery furnace of kindness and mercy and purpose and urgency. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah.